1 Corinthians chapter 1, the church in Corinth struggled with immorality and infighting and an unwillingness to discipline offenders. And we can see in the early chapters of this letter that the church was attracted to, to anything that glittered, anything that seemed impressive, which is how they ended up arguing about two impressive people, Paul and Apollos. Corinth had been exposed to the ministry of more than one servant of Christ and the Corinthians fell foolishly into the trap of trying to pick a preferred preacher. Some like Paul, they said, some like Apollos, and the, the most spiritual among them, I, I'm guessing it was the Sunday school teachers, uh, said that they liked Jesus. Now, what I want you to notice this morning is how the Apostle Paul decided to address this problem. He could have gone straight to the second commandment, explaining that they are making idols of their favorite pastors. He could have directed them to the fifth commandment and told them to uh, submit to whatever spiritual authorities that God had put in their life, uh, whether Paul or Apollos or someone else, as they preached to them and taught them the word of God. He could have even reminded them of the ninth commandment and just told them simply to mind their tongues, lest damage be done. Paul often used the law to instruct God's people, and he could have done so here. But instead, or at least on this occasion, he corrected their behavior by taking them to the gospel. He taught them how to think through the Christian life and Christian behavior by reflecting on the hidden power of the cross. The power of the cross, that captures the core message of this selection that I'm going to read with you from Paul's letter. Let's read it now, beginning at verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we know that today, at some point or another, we will be told untruths about what life's problems are and what the solutions are to those problems. We'll be told falsehoods about what is wise and foolish, what is weak and what is powerful. And yet while so much around us is warped, you speak truth to us this morning. So heal us and help us as you speak truth to us through your word. Heal us through the ministry of your word, of a thousand ailments, of our unbelief, our superstition, our anxiety, our self-absorption, and a fear of this world that so often eclipses our fear of you. Lord, you have delivered all those who trust in Christ from the sting of death. Deliver us also from the shadows of death that still play upon our lives. Hear us and help us as we come to you today in confidence, as we come to you, our faithful Father, trusting in the powerful work of your irresistible spirit and praying everything as we always do. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 19th century, archaeologists digging around the Palatine Hill in Rome unearthed a house. It originally formed, it seems, one part of the, the palace of the emperor Caligula, a very unpleasant man who reigned in Rome uh, from about 37 AD to his death four years later. He was murdered. In the years following Caligula's death, the imperial palace continued to grow, and over time, this house became hidden, became entombed within the foundations of the larger palace complex, and so it was preserved until its rediscovery in the 1850s. Now, ironically, the house quickly became best known for a bit of graffiti on one of its walls. For in examining the, the home, scholars uh, discovered a kind of ancient cartoon. It showed an image of a young man about the age of some of you here, looking up in admiration at a crucified figure, a figure of a man stretched out upon a cross with a donkey's head. And underneath the picture was written, Alexemenos worships his God. Now, it's just possible that there's a little-known, yet-to-be-discovered religion in Rome about this time that worshipped a crucified donkey man. The problem with that theory is that this is not a work of religious art. The caption's badly spelled. The picture is crudely drawn. In other words, this is not a pious religious symbol. It's a mocking laugh and a strange new religion spreading around the Roman world, a ridiculous religion that started in Jerusalem and required its followers to worship a crucified God. You see, from the beginning, whether it was Latin-speaking Rome or Greek-speaking Corinth, the word of the cross was folly. Just as Paul says in the opening verse, the, the summary statement that we read this morning. Actually, the Corinthians, even more than other urban people, prized what they thought was wisdom, prized the smooth talkers of their day. 
If you were to stop by at a Corinthian uh, convenience store and pick up, say, the Aegean Monthly, uh, or maybe a, a weekly newspaper, or news magazine, Kronos, uh, you'd, you'd find uh, you know, essays and reports uh, written by uh, the Greek intelligentsia of the day, prominent professors maybe, scientists or economists. But the one thing they'd all have in common in these pieces would be that their rhetoric would be so good. They'd sound so clever. They wrote so well. Just as in most university towns and cities today, the Greek elite cared as much about how something sounded as they did about what was actually said. And naturally, Christians in Corinth or Rome were exposed to this seemingly wise, sensible, certainly witty kind of talk all the time. And in Corinth, it trickled into their discussions and preferences for what they liked to hear in their preachers. But much more importantly, all this emphasis on cleverness could also undermine the, the foundation of these Christians' faith. Because one of the things these wise people said, and oh, they said it so well, was that the cross of Christianity was foolishness. They could create better cartoons with their words than Roman graffiti artists could with their chisels. They were, they were smart, they were clever. You couldn't help seeing the funny side of a crucified God, once they pointed it out. From the beginning, the usual view of the Christian faith and its cross has been that it's strange at best and foolish at worst. The problem with this perspective, however, as Paul says in verse 18, is that it's shared by people with a tragic destiny. The cross's foolishness, he says, but it's foolishness for those who are perishing. Paul was not deaf to the laughter of the world directed to the cross. He wasn't any more deaf to mockery than you are or I am. On the contrary, he listened to it very carefully and he noted its sound. He detected the hollow laugh of a dying man who needs to be saved but is being lost. He heard the empty crow of a crowd that thinks it's smart but has rejected the power of God for its salvation. These are the sick patients who laugh at their doctor as he offers them their only cure. These are the accused criminals who reject the only good defense that their lawyer can give them. In other words, this perspective on the cross that it's foolish, this worldly wisdom belongs to a dying breed. Unhappily, it is also the case, as the apostle explains in verses 19 to 21, that this worldly wisdom is a joke to the one who is wisest of all. Paraphrasing Isaiah 29, Paul reminds Christians that God turns upside down the so-called wisdom of the wise. He destroys it. He thwarts it. The Lord's like a professional heavyweight wrestler laughing at a group of children who think they can take him down. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? God effortlessly makes foolish the wisdom of the world. And Paul says so in verse 20. In fact, since the world fancies big talk and big ideas and proud solutions to life's biggest problems, God refused to save through wisdom or anything that our world thinks is wise. Do you see what Paul is saying? That God ignores worldly wisdom. Actually, he does not esteem it. He declares it useless. 
in the quest for salvation. Now let me hurry to say that human learning over the centuries has had many shining moments in more ways than I can probably count. And I hope that you'll be at the forefront of some of that. And yet the point is that for that which most matters, this kind of wisdom is least useful. You see, as, as Paul says in verse 21, this foolish message about a savior on a cross is what we most need. It's what you need. It's what I need. It's what the people in your community, in your workplace need. The death of Jesus Christ actually saves. And when people discover this, when they figure this out by hearing the word of God, then they find themselves with young Alexemenos gazing up at the man on the cross. But they see the God-man of the biblical gospels and not the donkey man of the mocking Greeks. Knowing Jesus gives us a whole new perspective on the wisdom of the wise. We need this perspective and we need to take it with us wherever we go. We need to take it with us out of this church this morning. Now in verses 18 to 21, when considering the supposed wisdom of the wise, Paul had his eyes on the Greeks. But when he continues his thoughts in verses 22 to 25, he now glances at both Greeks and, and Jews. You see, the cross is unimpressive in more than one way. For the Greeks, the cross did not appear clever. It, it couldn't appeal to the influential and the intelligent. But for the Jews, the cross did not appear powerful. They liked signs and miracles, not a symbol of weakness and shame. Where the cross was a, a signpost of folly to the Greeks, it was, it was a theological roadblock for the Jews. Because Deuteronomy 21 pronounces a curse on anyone who hung on a tree. And the Jews rightly understood this to include executions on a cross. How could the promised one be the crucified one? And so Paul captures in these two words the objections of all kinds of hearers and of many skeptics who came after him. Foolishness and weakness. These are the two synonyms or substitute words, words that the world uses for the cross. For many, the, the, the crucified Christ represents the foolishness of the Christian God, the weakness of the Christian message. But you see, Christians have two different synonyms for the cross, and we find them here in our passage as well, power and wisdom. For us, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When we're told that the Christian gospel isn't very impressive, we sometimes feel it. And we face the temptation to give it a, a bit of a, a dusting off, a facelift. We want to uh, give it an update. It's the sort of thing that we want to do when we uh, walk into a tired looking lobby uh, for a building that we think is important. We want to change things around a bit. But verse 25 tells us not to bother because God would rather have us learn to see the gospel his way than to refashion it in any other way. I'm here to tell you this morning that the most important thing that 10th Presbyterian Church has to offer for you any Sunday morning or any Sunday evening is a message that the world calls weakness and foolishness, but which we need to see 
is wisdom and power. I've read and and quoted this passage many times. I, I always thought verse 25 was making a point of emphasis about who God is. God is so wise that even his hypothetical foolishness, if God could really ever be foolish, is still wiser than our wisdom. God is so powerful that any hypothetical weakness, if there could be weakness in God, is still stronger than our strength. By the way, that's true. God is so wise. God is so powerful that God at his worst, if there ever could be such a thing, would still exceed us at our best. But that's not the point of this passage. Only recently I finally saw that what most of you may notice all along, uh, that verse 25 is making a point about the cross itself. When he talks about the foolishness of God, Paul's borrowing the unbeliever's term for the cross. When he talks about the weakness of God, Paul is borrowing another unbelieving description of the Christian gospel. And his message here is not about the divine wisdom and power of God. That's not what he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing the surprising power and wisdom we find in the cross. In reading commentaries on this passage written by early fathers of the church, I was struck by the way in which they repeatedly mention that this chapter of the Bible is not about the divine nature of Christ, which displays God's power and wisdom, although it does. It's about the cross. It's about his suffering humanity and how even at Christ's weakest, even when he was deserted by all, there's power and wisdom. Now, I hope we never forget that all Christians are servants of a mighty risen Savior. But you see, we must also remember that we are servants of one who is a crucified Savior. This cross isn't something that we, that we should hide. This cross is what the world needs to see. It's what we all need to see. Jesus Christ died on the cross and in order to present us faultless before the throne of God. This crucified Christ is our Savior. In Old Testament pictures, you could say that our names are engraved on the, the breastplate of a great high priest. And then that priest came and offered himself as a sacrifice in our place. Some call that weakness. God's word calls it power. In New Testament phrases, again, to use Paul's own words, Christ redeemed us from the, the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Some call that foolishness. God calls it the wisdom of the cross. In clear theological terms, we are saved by a substitutionary or vicarious atonement. Christ is our substitute, our, our vicar, and he faced the dreaded judgment of the throne of God for our sakes. In the great exchange, our gracious God uh, that, that he planned from the beginning, our guilt is taken away and, and credited or imputed to Christ. It's our sin that held him to his cross, that led to all his suffering, that led to his eventual death at the hands of the Jews and the Romans, and yes, even in the plan of God at the hands of his father. And all of that happened 
so that all who place their trust in this substitute, this obedient and righteous Jesus Christ, will have everything good about Jesus credited to us, all his righteousness imputed to us, given to all those who trust in this holy substitute and savior. Some call that nonsense. God's word teaches us to call it amazing grace. This, above all else, we need to remember, not just today, not just on Sundays, but from Mondays to Saturdays too. We have no reason to be ashamed of this gospel. No reason to update it. No reason to refurbish it. And every reason to join with Alexemenos, standing with admiration and wonder at the foot of the cross. And yet, being a Christian comes at a cost. And we must count that cost. For of course, what is true of Christ and the cross, we will discover is also true for Christians, for all who trust in that cross. I bet Alex felt that the morning he walked down the street and saw his picture, a picture of him scratched on the wall, the picture of himself looking up at a mocked and mutilated savior. But the hard fact is that the gospel we confess it seems foolish to others. And so you and I, trusting in that gospel, will also seem weak and foolish too. That's not comfortable. At times it's quite painful. In spite of appearances, I don't like to, to uh, look weak and foolish. Uh, you all look pretty good this morning. I doubt you do either. And, and we'll, we'll be tempted sometimes to avoid a way of life to avoid a confession of Christ that leaves us exposed to the disapproval and the mockery of others. But you see, it's part of God's plan that obedient Christians will look as silly as the gospel sounds silly. In fact, that has been God's plan from the beginning. And the apostle Paul explains that to us in verses 26 to 29. We can see that if we consider our callings, Paul says, look around you. Not many of us are rated as wise men by the world's standards. Not many of us are powerful. Not many of us belong to the upper crust of society. For the most part, just the opposite is true. God often chooses people like he, like he designed his gospel. Uh, uh, unlikely people, failures, outsiders, foolish and weak by the standards of the wise and the powerful. He chooses to magnify his own plan that way. That's the basic point of verse 28, where Paul was saying that God chose this world's nothings because he wanted the somebodies to see they're really nobodies. In other words, we, we unimportant people are prime examples of the principle of God's using weakness and foolishness for good purposes. God uses Christians more in spite of who we are than because of who we are. As an unknown third century Christian once put it, God is not elitist in his choice of believers. That's humbling, but that is okay. This is a profound comment, of course, as you can hear, a profound comment on the Christian community and on Christian people. And so Christians through the years have offered many reflections on Paul's words in verses 26 to 9. And I think there's at least five thoughts which we should consider for the life and the work of Christ's church today. In the first place, 
I think we should think carefully about plans for spreading the gospel that assume the effectiveness of working from the top down. Yes, the church should be thankful when people of influence in this world become Christians. But we should not invest a disproportionate amount of our resources to try to win the rich and powerful at the expense of the poor and weak. Jesus Christ is the redeemer of all kinds of people, and he's not dependent on prominent people to advance his kingdom. Second, and obviously, we should be planting churches not just among the rich, but also among the poor, the uneducated, the lost causes of society. Christ-like Christians are thrilled when people come to faith, come to 10th, whose names will never be searched on Google, whose lives will be lost to everything but government records, maybe a gravestone, and of course, God's book of life. In the third place, and to say what also ought to be obvious, we should not be despising the powerful. This passage doesn't teach people that they are freed by God because of their poverty or that the rich are condemned because of their wealth. Big players in society may be harder to reach, Jesus has taught us, but their need for the cross of Christ is just as great as any other person's. And so churches are needed not only in slums, but in center cities, in suburbs, and in university towns. And yet in the fourth place, it must certainly be fair to call wise and powerful Christians to be self-aware, to be cautious about the pull and the tug of the world. Christians who grow prominent in society can sometimes forget their roots. People who grow wise in the world's eyes can forget true humility. Uh, The famous Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once a Harley Street doctor in London, was seeing a play with his friends one night. And upon stepping out of the theater, he, he saw a Salvation Army marching band making its way through Leicester Square. They represented everything that successful people uh, would despise. His colleagues thought, him ridic- that thought them ridiculous. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones heard them playing their hymns, he suddenly realized who he was. He, he said to himself, these are my people. These are the people that I belong to. And this was a turning point in his life as he remembered that he should not be numbered amongst the wise and the powerful but in fact belonged to those who were weak and foolish. Finally, we must all mind what's said here about boasting and glorying in verse 29. It's just as inappropriate to be bragging about our humble origins or our hard times as it is to preen ourselves about privileges or posh schools. The gospel was designed so that no human being would boast in the presence of God about anything. Ultimately, we're not to boast in the presence of God, as Paul says in verse 29, because of what God himself has done, which Paul explains in verse 30. God has forged a unique relationship between Christ and the Christian. Just as Christ transforms his own weakness and shows his real strength, just as Christ unveils his own foolishness and then reveals his true wisdom, so Christ... So too, when God unveils our foolishness and sinfulness and dirtiness and the weakness of our, of our bondage, he also reveals the, 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 the wisdom and the righteousness and the holiness 
and the redemption that we find through Christ, through Christ alone. What Paul teaches us in verse 30 is that God takes all who believe in Christ and he places them in in Christ. True wisdom now is to discover that Christ, the Christ who appears to be nothing, is in fact for us everything. He is the wisdom of God's provision. In Jesus, we find our righteousness. We're we're justified and, and forgiven before the throne of God. In Christ, we find our sanctification. We grow in holiness as we grow closer to and more like him. In Christ, we find our redemption, our full and final deliverance from sin and guilt, from punishment and curse, from final death and hell. There's more that I could say but it's God's provision of an entirely sufficient Savior that we are to see this morning. This is the driving point of this passage. So that, as I paraphrase, we who tend to boast will learn to boast in the Lord. In 1731, a young colonial preacher was persuaded uh, to preach a commencement sermon at a little place called Yale College in New Haven, Connecticut. And the preacher, by this point in his life, had had noticed that the main weapons used by opponents of the gospel in his day were laughter and mockery. The wise men, the debaters of his age, the skeptics, the deists, and the atheists labored to make the cross of Christ and the gospel of Christ look weak and foolish. This man, maybe more than any other American in his century labored for the whole of his life to show in his own unique way how the gospel properly understood is in fact wise and powerful by the way he was doing that not so that people would think more highly of himself or of his friends he wasn't trying to make believers in the gospel look respectable he was trying to help people to see that the jesus whom they mocked as weak and foolish was their only source of power and wisdom. And that's why he entitled his sermon, God Glorified in the Work of Redemption. The preacher's name was Jonathan Edwards, and I I need to be honest, he's not known for writing the the, the simplest or even the most elegant sentences in the English language. But the truth of what he said that day is worth mentioning and remembering for all our days. At the beginning of his sermon, He insisted that what God aims at in the arrangement, he said the disposition, in the arrangement of things in the affairs of redemption is that man should not glory in himself, but in God alone. Is this not what Paul is saying to us in verse 29 and verse 31? And at the end of his sermon, Edwards declared that whatever scheme of salvation is inconsistent with our entire dependence on God for all and of having all through him and in him is repugnant to the design, is is opposed to the design of the gospel and it robs it of all that which God accounts its glory. Is this not what we understand from the whole of the scriptures and from this passage tonight? We've only understood We've only understood the plan of salvation properly if the whole system offers God the glory. Edwards was preaching on the very passage that 
we are meditating on this morning. And I think he understood. I think you can see that he understood what is at its very heart. There is a God-glorifying wisdom and power to the cross. The Christian gospel calls each one of us to trust in Christ as the crucified one who came as a substitute for every sinner who will place their trust in him instead of themselves. That includes children, students, workers, moms, dads, and those who consider themselves to be wise and powerful in this world. Now, some of you have heard this call for many years. All of you are hearing this call this morning. And so as you walk out of these doors, may you remember and truly believe that united to this Savior, you will have all that you will ever need for this life and for the next. And may you also find it your irresistible joy to join Jonathan Edwards in glorifying Christ alone and the unknown Alexemenos in worshiping his God. Let us pray. Our good and gracious God and Father, we thank you for, for planning and for executing and for teaching us about this plan of redemption. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who was crucified for us. Help us to see in his death the power, the wisdom, the hope and grace that we need. We ask this trusting in your spirit's work in our lives. And we pray it in the name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.